been abducted by aliens. We have not been abducted by aliens. We are free beings with agency. <laughs> the agency. Eugene here in Toronto. And Candy here in Chicago. How are you doing, Eugene? I have not been abducted by aliens. They told that me is to good. that. I think that's good, unless it's a good thing to be abducted by. But I think there has been, there is a cabal, there is an international conspiracy. The people who killed the Kennedys are behind our inability to get this episode recorded. I know. Well, we did record. I guess we can say we recorded last week and then found out it didn't record. Half of it didn't record. And, and that we really don't know what happened. It's because we are technical. <sighs> we're poor at the technical end of things. <laughs> That's funny. But it's good. It's good to see you and talk to you, Candy. You too. Very good to talk to you too. It's um, uh it's been too long since we've done an episode. Um, but then again, I'm boring and don't have much to say, so it's probably okay. I don't know about that. I'm pretty sure you're gonna find us. Um, I'm sure you have all kinds of things to tell us. Let's start with some congratulations. All right. All right. First congratulations to Mr. Wab Canoe, the first First Nations premier in Canada in uh, beautiful Manitoba representing the NDP. Best of luck to uh, Wab Canoe, and I hope he can turn around Manitoba. That's pretty exciting. I, I also want to uh, send congratulations out. Um, since our last episode, we've had uh, uh, U.S. chess championships, and in the uh, in the open tournament, uh, the winner was uh, the mighty Fabiano Caruana, rated number one in the world <laughs> after the world champion. Um walked away with the tournament and in the women's tournament carissa yip is the women's champion uh this year so congratulations to them both two big money chess tournaments yeah well you've mentioned yip here before so i recognize her name uh yeah i love watching the uh the chess you know it's, yeah. it's funny because i play go i don't play chess but yeah. i really enjoy chess as a spectator sport i think <laughs> that's something about me i'm sure I drink 50. I don't drink blue. There you go. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Well, I guess a lot, really. Um, today, I don't know. I've just been moving things around. I went to see, um, I don't even know where to start. I've been busy working. And I went to see, I did go to the theater, though, and I saw the movie, The Creator. And it was very good. It was, um, is it? Is it a life-changing science fiction? No, but it's a very exciting war film and it's humans against AI. And it it surprised me emotionally. It stars um, the fellow who's in the Ku Klux Klansman, uh, Denzel Washington's son, David. John David Washington, I think his name is. And he's fantastic. He carries the movie on his shoulders as well as a young child in the movie. And um, it's very, very stimulating. It doesn't give you any surprises science fiction wise, but it gives you a 
surprises human wise and emotionally wise. And I highly recommend it. If you don't get to the theater, Eugene, then you got to try and rent it or something. Right on. I haven't been out to the, the movies in a while now, you know. Um, I know. The fall has been a blur. Been busy with a number of things here that I've had to take care of. That's um, been taking my focus. Well, I think you and I are both in the same situation. We've had some things we had to deal with, some paperwork, basically. Um, yeah, to say it nicely. Now, listen, I've been stressing out this week, and it's all a good problem, but I can't. It, it's very overwhelming. I think I have imposter syndrome. Um, you know, I I got a um, a little bit of a grant to go to the UK and finish my documentary. Yes. Well, I booked the flights, and I was so stressed out about the whole thing. Just you know making decisions, which flight, what time, where to go. And I don't know where I'm going. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. I had to print out maps of the UK and print out maps. I even print out maps of Europe because I'm like, well, where's Ireland? Where's the UK? Where's this? How far is that? <laughs> and I'm Googling like how many kilometers from Dublin to Heathrow? How many kilometers from Heathrow to we're going to Norwich? Um and we're going to see, I'm going to interview and visit people I know from online from many years ago, some right back to like 2000, maybe, and some from when you and I were blogging. Uh, do you remember Sheila Ash? Did you ever see Sheila? She had a blog. She went to India. No. And you may have peeked at it. Um, but anyway, I know her from a book club. Anyway, so I'm trying to coordinate, not knowing anything about the, you know, where anything is. And it's been really stressful then i'm feeling like i'm not a person who goes to uk i don't do those things i don't do this stuff who do you think you are you, you've 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 somebody's gotten you confused with somebody else you're not supposed to do this <laughs> so i've had a very kind of like i'm trying to think why don't you enjoy this process so i'm trying yeah. to, i'm trying i'm trying when do you go? we're going in january all right mm -hmm. so it's coming up it's coming up soon, and um, I'm doing some extra reading. I'm reading about Julian of Norwich, who I have read this book before, but she was a a mystic, and she lived in a small town in a room, like with three windows, and she stayed in there, and she was an anchorite, or I guess an anchoress, you might say, anchorite, anchoress, which is like a hermit or a holy person. Almost wow. like you remember Sister Wendy, she didn't like to socialize. Sister Wendy lived in her caravan. She didn't, they gave her special permission to not be with the other nuns. <laughs> Do you ever watch Sister Wendy's art? No. Oh my god, you have to watch Sister Wendy. I just I that's funny because I just was I went through I, I was going through my stuff and cleaning it off, and I found a sister Wendy tape. I was like, oh my god, this is so juicy. And she talks about the passionate painting of the Renaissance, and she's a nun. It's oh, a little funny. Okay. It's so oh, erotic. <laughs> you're like, uh, Sister Wendy, you're a nun. Well, and, yeah, so that's what I was doing. I got an international driver's license, although I don't know if I will be driving, but I did get it. And um, I'm looking at your rail passes and stuff like that. It's just, you know, it's a lot. And I have other demands on my time and life. And then I can't really enjoy them if I don't nip this in the butt and get these flights down. You know what well, I mean? Well, you know, you're you're planning a trip in fairly short notice. 
I guess so. I mean, it's been in the, well, it basically everything had to come together at the right time and then reach out to people. We're going to see asterisk and red. Awesome. Yeah. We're probably going to stay with them a night or two. And so, you know, I got to reach out to people. You can't buy the ticket unless you find out that they're in town. Then you've got to go back and find out where the ticket is. And you know what I mean? It's like, um, it's a little bit of a juggling, but it did work out very well. And we're flying into Dublin. And you remember Richard, who um, we had on, he talked about Max's Kansas City and CBGB. He yes. was, he, yeah, we're going to say hi to him in, um, in Dublin and Belfast. Awesome. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, so it's coming together. I don't have all the plans worked out, but um, it's coming together. That's good. That's, well, I that's... remember traveling. I traveled once. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to travel. Seems like again. it's been well. It's been 2020 since since I traveled just before the pandemic. Of course, of course. Um, I do have a vague plan in place uh, in over a year to to kidnap your husband. And I know. I got. I know he's going to save his pennies and put them aside, and he's going to go with you. Um, he's pretty excited look, to look outside God is all I can say. Yeah. He's very excited to find out that he's really going to do it. And yeah. I mean, he's overwhelmed too. He's never been to Europe. So we're both kind of freaking out. Like what the fuck? Oh yeah. And, and yeah. Asia will just blow him away. Blows away. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So he's going to be like a world traveler first, first Europe and then, and then Asia. Oh, I, I know. It's amazing. Long overdue. I feel very lucky and very, um, yeah, just very lucky and very grateful. And I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, we're going to have to do some podcasts from long distance. That would be fun. We can do that. You know, I like to travel with a computer, Eugene. (laughs) Are you going to take your whole whole desktop? Take my whole desktop, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've been known to show up, um, whoever's listening out there, I've been known to show up on people's doorsteps with my entire desktop (laughs) because I didn't have a a laptop. I'm going to fix that. I'm I'm going to get a laptop. Well, you can get a laptop pretty inexpensive. Correct. These days, Correct. So, yeah, I will do that. And then we can have the podcast on the road. Great. Some more, which we've done before and we'll do it again. Now, you know, I haven't really done. Well, I guess I, I've been to a lot of places since the pandemic. But, you know, you're thinking it's driving. It's not really that, you know to the conferences but this you know it's i call that i don't call that travel <laughs> i <laughs> this i'm going holy fuck this is actual travel <laughs> it's on one of those little airplanes yes it is yes it is and just just remember they're built by the lowest bidder stop it stop <laughs> it <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> utah phillips used to say that that he didn't like to, he didn't travel by airplane because he said they're heavier than air. Any old fool knows they can't fly. Yeah, I know. Well, and his theory was was that it was like you know those Roadrunner cartoons when the the coyote goes off the cliff mm-hmm. and he doesn't fall until he looks down. Right? Yeah, that's that right. Thing. Every it's like people are you're flying because of an act of collective will. Yes. And you know what happens? The reason there's plane crashes is. Some fool looks up from his in-flight magazine, looks out the window and says, oh, shit, we're heavier than air. This can't happen. And down they go. (laughs) Just saying. There is a lot to that idea. A lot to that idea. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What else? Well, it's exciting, though. You're going to have a great time. It is. It is. You're going to be a little jealous. I'm going to... 
this evening, after we finish visiting here and catching up, I'm going downtown. I'm going to park my car down there so I can take Steg home, pick him up from work. But I'm going to go to the Gene Siskel Film Center and watch The Pigeon Tunnel. Oh, yeah. I read the book. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, I had no idea that Errol Morris was making a documentary, so I'm very, very curious to see it. It would be most interesting, huh? I think so. Yeah. It looks like uh, Lacar might be in it, too, from some of the, even though he passed away last year, it looks like oh, he- Oh, from some existing been, clips? It, I, I think he might have interviewed him. I saw thought I saw him in, in one of the um, stills for the, for the film. So I'm guessing they may have talked to him. Well, that's going to be very interesting to see. I know. Because what a story. I know. I mean, a spy novelist who really was a spy. How cool is that? <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's very cool. Well, I've seen a couple of films okay. uh, just on the, on the old TV set, on the streamer uh -huh. machinery. Uh-huh. Um, I saw one just delightful documentary called Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. Oh. All my eyes out. Oh, I oh yeah. Eugene, that's so sweet. I love that. I grew up watching Mr. Dress Up. Oh, Mr. Dress Up and and uh, the Friendly Giant. Totally. I couldn't get through a morning without those two. I know. Uh, I know. The it just took me right back to my childhood to watch the the documentary. How beautiful! Uh, which really had two stars. Yeah. For much of it, Mr. Dress Up was the one star but the other star was a puppeteer um who did the puppets for the casey and finnegan yeah uh, finnegan who only who <laughs> only talked to casey that's right and casey who looking at casey now was clearly non-binary uh-huh but uh -huh. as a kid it's very interesting your perspective i mean looking at it now it's like oh isn't that interesting i don't know casey's sex but right. as a kid it just didn't matter no, of course not. Isn't that interesting? As a kid, Casey yeah. was just Casey. Kids That's accept, right. actually, until they're taught to hate stuff. Kids just yeah. think they're willing to accept the world as they find it, right? Correct. Um, and also, uh, you know, it's a non-binary name. It's um, it's a non-gender name, Casey. It could be boy or girl or, or anything. Um, and um, they had a very neutral hairstyle and neutral clothes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's quite clever, actually, and I'm sure it was done on purpose. And, you know, all these years later, I can still remember Mr. Dressup reaching into his, he had this um, trunk. Yes. And he'd reach into the trunk and yes. he'd pull out like his costumes and stuff. I know. And he could make really the world into anything he wanted. It was amazing. I just yeah. loved his world of imagination. Um, yeah, and he encouraged kids to play imagination and be somebody different too, just for a couple of hours. And it exactly. wasn't even Halloween; it was just for something to do. And you know what I learned? Yeah, that I didn't know, and you may or may not have known this, mm. but um, Mr. Dressup was uh, Ernie Coombs was American, and he was doing some work with another Mister, a fellow named Mister Rogers. <laughs> and the the work was drying up in in the states but oh. the cbc in canada was funding children's programming wow. so he had an opportunity to come up to canada and film many episodes of mr rogers neighborhood here in canada that's and really he cool brought with him a fellow who's working with him on the show ernie coombs so the two misters came up together to canada and 
after uh, a couple of years, Mr. Rogers had an opportunity to go back home to the States to work. Mm. Uh, but Ernie Coombs liked it up in Canada and wanted to have a show of his own. So That's really cool. Yeah, so uh, so Mr. Dressup was born. But I had no idea the two misters were buddies. No, no, me neither. That's amazing. They, they clearly had the highest respect for uh, for one another. And for children, yes. Yes. Um, you know, and the puppeteer was called Judith Lawrence. Oh, good memory. No, I, I looked it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> As she left the show at, at some point um, before it ended, I think it couple of years before the show ended mm. uh, she retired from the show and i believe she moved to hornby island oh that you know that's a good place to go that's a good place for a puppeteer to go you'd be well at home there well yeah yeah i understand hornby is quite a nice place it is laid back i don't know if they even have a stoplight you gotta like that yeah yeah really yeah. So the other film that that I saw also streaming on The Crave um, was an unusual film about power and fame, ambition, hypocrisy, and denial mm. called Tar. Oh. Masterfully acted by Kate Blanchett, uh-huh. um, who is just so brilliant in this film. Uh, she plays a conductor at the peak of her at the peak of her powers, both creatively and as a as a power, as a force in the classical music business, mm -hmm. uh, and the film is really about her unraveling. Mm. Um, she plays a, a character who has everything, um, but who has abused her power in in various ways and her her the trappings around her everything becomes unraveled during the film it's very very powerful it's a, a lovely film i highly recommend it it's not a a fast-paced film so right. if you have trouble with uh with films that are a little bit slow paced you might you might have trouble with this one also um some of the scenes are kind of edited together in unusual ways, really? which I quite enjoyed, but it may bother some people. Oh, uh, it's uh, they show you different things, and you have to figure out what's really going on in, mm. in parts of it. Um, mm. And I, I thought that was just it was a challenging way to see the story um, roll out. Right, uh, but I highly recommend this one. Uh, I, I think. With a, a lesser actor, it would be harder to carry off. But Kate mm. Blanchett is so good in this. Yeah, she's just made for this role. And um, well, turn on the Crave Machine if you have a chance, and uh, uh, and give it a watch. Right, very cool. You know, it sounds a little bit like. First of all, I wonder if we talked about it, but we may have talked about it last week when we tried recording, because I'm I'm having a memory, but. It uh, sounds a little bit like Whiplash with J.K. Simmons, where he's a conductor and he leads a band and he's cruel and he kind of has a meltdown and unwinding, but he kind of tortures one of his students. He tortures them all, I think. Um, well, sounds, did you ever see that? No, I did not. But it sounds kind of similar. Yeah. In a way, there's um, 
there's an inappropriate relationship. There's people who get kind of uh, pushed aside for mm. uh, whatever reason at the whim of this conductor. Right. Um, who you you think is different than she turns out to be. Hmm. Um, mm. so you, you begin to get disappointed in her as the film goes, goes on so um well you know i don't know many classical music movies but uh oh. but this mm. is one and it's uh it's very very well done well worth very, watching. very interesting i know bradley cooper is making one called maestro it's coming out soon he's made one and it's coming out soon oh yeah kind of interesting yeah maybe we're coming into an era of classical music maybe <laughs> Maybe. You know, I've been watching uh, some YouTube videos. I think the channel is called Virgin Rock. And it's strangely addictive. Hmm. Uh, it's hosted by a classical, a high-level classical harp player. Oh. things, And what she does is she makes videos in which she listens to rock songs yeah and, um, and talks about them in terms of how they're put together she kind of picks them apart and talks about how they're put together mm -hmm. and why they're effective in different kinds of ways mm -hmm. so she does oh a whole variety you know there's I think she does uh she talks about some sound garden she talks about some um uh some lots of queen a little bit of bob dylan mm -hmm. she has a real i just watched a couple today which she talked about uh jethro tall of all bands of all bands of all bands yeah and one of them um jethro tall recorded a, a tune they call bure which was a dance form a medieval dance form and the particular bure that that was used for as the basis of this Jethro Tull song mm -hmm. um, was came from Bach and the harpist who's the host of this channel knows the knows the Bach version mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is the Jethro Tull and what he's done with it and how he brings the flute in and how he brings percussion in and uses rhythm in different ways and she talks about how all of that comes together and it's kind of fascinating because it's not very often we hear somebody talking about the music of pop music mm -hmm. you know why is why right. is this interesting why do we like right right, right? Yeah, I like and a lot of I like stuff, that idea you know like some of the stuff I, I watched recently one which she she talked about a, a Frank Zappa uh song and she oh. had never heard Frank Zappa before Huh. It must be fascinating to come from a very focused musical background and then hear somebody who does these really high level works of the imagination, which um, right. really challenge a lot of the traditions that she holds dear. So right. I, I'm enjoying this channel quite a lot. And uh, I, I recommend watching at least a few videos that, that she's done. Okay. Classical cool. harpist perspective on rock music. Wow. And I think we've talked yeah. about reaction videos in the past. It's sort of a big thing. 
but there's the challenge to all the people doing reaction videos are copyright laws. And oh, I so see. some things um, like she, you know, in this particular channel, she likes to, she'll put the headphones on and she'll you watch her listening to the tune and then she'll stop it and she'll talk about different parts and what's going on in them. Oh, I see. But she can't play it. But in some cases, she hear. can't play it. So uh, she has the stuff that she can't play on her Patreon. Okay. Right. Because she got wants to put it somewhere, but yeah. some stuff she can't, she just can't right. have on YouTube or she'll get herself demonetized. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Well, that's funny about listening to something you haven't heard before and reading and music. I'm reading um, a fantastic book that I can barely put down. I'm just about finished it. I, I re was reading Julian of Norwich, as I mentioned, the, about the um, Anchorage. But I'm reading Goth, A History by Lull Tolhurst. And Lull Tolhurst is the drummer from The Cure. Uh, he's no longer with The Cure, but he helped co-found them and create them and, and some of their best albums. And he's going back in time and talking about the different events that cur that curated goth music and where it came from. It's post-punk and it came out of Manchester and several of the people that started playing goth, like Susie and the Banshees, before um, it became really called goth. And and the cure they were at the famous sex pistols gig where there were like 10 people there and one of them was bono from u2 maybe the edge was there too and joy division a couple of the guys from joy division and a couple of the guys from the cure and Susie and the banshees and i mean yeah, they gotta really, have a really big you got i'm sorry to interrupt but you gotta have a really big ego to call yourself the edge sorry go on to call yourself what the edge Oh, well, he's an amazing guitarist, so I guess he can get away with it. <laughs> but I mean, come on, The Edge. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I guess know. once you do that, then you could also, you could be a time frame, and then you could be The weekend too. Right. I think but you're a the. I think when it comes to YouTube, people either love them or hate them, you know? And I never even thought about it. I thought it was creative and artsy. I never even thought about their names, Bono or The Edge. Just that's who they were. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it could seem very annoying. Um, you I know. know, it's funny. U2 is a band that everybody I know assumes I love. Oh, oh yeah, you, you love U2, right? Well, I, I wouldn't have ever you. thought of you loving U2. I, I I've can't known even, you since U2. I cannot even get through, like, a song hardly. Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely A lot of people I know them. assume that I, I, I really like U2. I love them, and I thought about how much I would like to go to Vegas and see them playing in that crazy building, the sphere right now, but the tickets are $700 or something. So yeah, that's, that's, that's a little much for, for a music show. I think yeah, I'm really not sure why it has to be so expensive. It's a, a shame, but maybe they'll go on tour. I've never seen them and I really want to see them, but the focus really isn't on you two. They're mentioned a little bit, but not too much in this book. It's really about Susie and the Banshees. Her Wait, job, I, her I just, I What's that? I just digress. That's but, all. No, there's no digress. It's it's all good. I'm just trying to remember, you know, a little bit about what I read. One thing I can tell you is it's absolutely juicy. I could almost say I wrote the book. That's how much I feel close to it. Like, did I write this? <laughs> like, I feel like I could have been there. You know, I know every producing story and record company. And yeah. 
um, the atmosphere, the clothing, and, you know, the idea of trying to figure out what was that moment and why is it? He describes it as post-war and that kids didn't have any future. They were going to have really shitty jobs if they had any. And this idea that you see the Sex Pistols and they just came out and, and made their own clothes and made their own sounds, you know, barely music and thinking, well, I could do that too. I'll make my own clothes or I'll find my own look and um, we'll write some songs and being obsessed with like T.S. Eliot or Rimbaud or, you know, there's a whole bunch, there's a whole like world of like specific books that like goths read. It's like the handbook to be a goth. You would read Burroughs, you would read Rimbaud, you would read, um, you know, lots of poetry. Goths love poetry. There you go. <laughs> they like to feel their emotions. And um, so it's just a fantastic book. Reading it reminds me of Amy Rigby's book that we read mm -hmm. and talked to Amy about. And it's got that same feeling. Um, I think you'd really love it. Um, yeah, I bet you some of this, the, the reason it has the same feeling is because uh, the author was there. Yeah. Like you're writing about a scene and you were yeah. there. You get this really vivid clarity about what it was all about because you have a first person account a witness account. yeah that's got to be it that's got to be it because it really is like you're just in it you just really feel and you're right it's it's not even about being an expert it's being the only person that did it you know i always like yeah. to say well i'm not an expert i'm just the only one that did this <laughs> and it's pretty much like that amy was the only one doing what she did and uh, these guys were the only ones doing what they did. And um, it's a really a lot of fun. There's a few photos. And um, it's a delightful read. I'm going to give it to you after. Uh, okay, I'm looking forward to reading that one. I, I know you're going to enjoy it, even if you don't know the music. You So he mentions that triggered something else to remind me about this book, was that you mentioned the people listening to music that they'd never heard before. Well, he mentions someone who I'd never heard of and that he really got into and who changed their career. Now, my memory is, I've forgotten what the name was now. I think I remembered it, you know, last week when I was going to tell you about it. I think his name's Charles Walker or Chris Walker. Never heard of him. He kind of sounds like he went punk, post-punk, psychedelic, and then into his own realm. I don't know, but apparently he's got this trilogy of albums and they're fantastic. And I just think we're going to have to track them down and listen to them. And I'll clarify that. I'm sure they're on YouTube and we'll have to figure out who it is and listen to them. Um, Cause I'd never heard of them. And I got intrigued. Very, very intrigued. Well, I'm i uh, I'm reading a book right now written by a friend of ours, mm. uh, Salah Bashir. And the book is called first to leave the party. My life with ordinary people who happen to be famous. <laughs> well, I think we look at that. Isn't that great? Thank you for showing me the cover. I think we have to congratulate Salah. Yes, congratulations. We we had the opportunity to go to the book launch last week. Good for um, you. Which was really a delight. And wow, the entertainment was total blast from the, the past. Uh, first, we had Lorraine Sagato. Wow. Parachute Club. Yep. Um, do a couple of tunes. And then on came uh, Carol Pope. Wow. Just just blew me away. You know, it also took me right back to my high school days. Yeah. Hearing, hearing High School Confidential by Rough Trade. Yeah. Just thinking how um, how raw that song was. And she still 
performs it super raw and she's looking great and wow it was fabulous to see her yeah well you showed me a you sent me a photo of her and she just looks phenomenal oh yeah she, she doesn't I, look I mean, any I've different see her i've never seen her perform live before so what a what a great a, a great opportunity yeah so I bet, it was a fun, I bet it was a fun party it's, it's a delightful book you know uh sella has many friends who are well known and uh, yes he he talks about so many stories in this book um i think one of my favorites is when when he had marlon brando come to his mom's backyard <laughs> yeah and yeah. and and fix up marlon um some some good old-fashioned levity's cooking <laughs> that's pretty cool uh so uh sheila just walked down the stairs and like started taking pictures of me i don't know don't nice. know what hi sheila well you probably got a beautiful glow on you it looks where i'm looking you've got a glow of the computer on your face oh i see <laughs> so it, could, it could be that um so he has chapters about uh aretha about eartha kit about edward lb joan rivers um margaret atwood uh keith herring andy warhol uh, a chapter called katie lang sings at our wedding um fascinating stories but interestingly enough well they're all stories about his encounters with celebrities really the book is about sala i think uh, yeah uh, his real marvelous life is really one of the most wonderful and generous people i've ever met and uh, I wish him the best success with uh, with a really interesting book. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's great. And was he the first to leave that party? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were pretty close second. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things about about Salah's have my own humor here, huh? Is that he uh, he understands that nobody needs to have a gala that goes for eight hours and has lots of speeches it's right. okay you you feed people give them some good entertainment and send them home yeah. um well, so the really three nice hour thing, turnaround uh something like that yeah. yeah uh you're you're kind of in and out and and i really appreciate that because sometimes <laughs> you go to an event and you know they just go on and on and don't know when to leave they have a lot to say mm -hmm. yeah and then you're like when can i actually go and it's appropriate Yes. Yeah, without hurting someone's feelings. Um, so it was really nice at this book launch. I saw some some folks I haven't seen since before the pandemic, which was good. Which was really good. Fantastic. Because we've been getting out a whole lot. Right. Right. Well, um, the what I've been watching at home is well, we're still working on Justified, and that again, fantastic. I can't believe we didn't watch it sooner. But I'm also. Oh, you haven't watching... seen Justified before? I had not. No. No. Oh, okay. No, no, well, season, I think it's season two. Season two and season three are really, really strong. Yeah, they are really good. Yeah, they're very good. Those are um, very, very good. And I think after that, I don't know if it jumped the shark, but it certainly, <laughs> I found that the dialogue was really, you know, when you, when you see some television in which you know that the purpose of the dialogue is to explain the plot? Yes, you're not supposed to do that um yeah well uh the, after season three i think that's what uh okay you're supposed to show not tell yeah yeah 
I'm getting texts on our group text. Steven's texting while we're doing this podcast. Or Sheila probably sent the pictures of you on the computer on this group text. Oh, I'll bet you that's what she did. No, no, no. She's just she's just loved uh something. There's okay. a this group text that we've all I know. Up. So uh that's just distracting. I gotta turn my phone off. I'm like, what the hell? And it's popping up on my computer because my phone's so close to the computer right now. Um, so I've been watching some old shows which I've already watched before. And I don't know if I told you that I'm working my way right through X-Files all over again. Oh, really? I don't think I've watched a, an actual episode of the X-Files. Yeah, I don't think it's your cup of tea per se. And I mean, it definitely, what's interesting was I was wondering how dated it is. It's weird because it's such a world. It's like its own universe that maybe it's not dated. I mean, definitely they're, you know, because they're FBI, their clothes are just like FBI clothes. Her makeup might be like very, her makeup super 90s, but she's so beautiful. It doesn't matter. It doesn't date it at all. In fact, it makes it even kind of more pleasant. It's sort of fun to go back into the 1990s. Anyway, um, it's a comfort TV. I loved it the first time and I'm loving it again this time. And it's kind of like, if I can't sleep, I'll just put it on and watch it. The other thing is we started watching Moonlighting. Stag had never seen Moonlighting, not an episode. He's never seen X-Files either. <laughs> Oh, wow. But I didn't make him watch X-Files, but he never saw Moonlighting, so he's agreed to watch that. He never it's saw kind of fun. either. Does it hold up? Moonlighting? Yeah. Well, that is such a good question, because I said to him the other night, I said, let's watch Justified, because I think it's too much to watch three episodes of Moonlighting in a row. Mainly because it is so um, campy that you really... When it came out, I liked it every week to be excited to wait and watch it again. What's he going to do? What's David Addison going to do this time? You know, where's the sexual tension going to be next week? But um, it's like almost overkill. So it's better to watch it with a, you know, a little space between some of the episodes. But I'm loving it because I loved it. I love the show and I'm enjoying it, but it is dated. Um, the humor is particularly dated it just i just don't think you would ever have anyone talk this way anymore interesting um, what yeah. i remember about it is it was really cute it it's was very like cute full of, it was a lot of cuteness yes. and a lot of a lot of nudge nudge wink wink sort of humor totally and and you know that's bruce willis he's smirking away like your favorite his smirk and um he's smirking away that i didn't realize that's where it started i didn't realize that was his thing I thought that came later with um, Die Hard, but nope, it's there. And um, but you know what's the scene stealer is that Sybil Shepherd is actually just such a good actor. Really? Yeah. Because she got a lot of criticism for her acting on that show. Well, I think it got probably campier as the show went on, but the first couple of episodes, she's so earnest that I'm really kind of there's moments where she's you know just very good and very heartfelt. Hmm. I did not know she got a lot of criticism for acting because it's her who's the better actor than him in this ah. right now in this season, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I love me a big, tall glass of Bruce Willis. So <laughs> it's kind of hard for it's kind of hard for me to even say that. But I actually think she's stealing it from him. Um, I know he's going to get stronger as the series goes on and she may get weaker. But right now she's good. She was in Taxi Driver, wasn't she? I don't know. Not yeah, sure. she was the object of his desire, of Travis Bickle's desire. Um, 
he was going to save the the princess Jodie Foster, you know, to for whatever reason he was going to save her to, uh, I guess, save the world. Something well, like we've that. been watching, and let me qualify that. Yeah, By we've been watching. I mean, <laughs> Hila's been watching while I've been reading, yes. looking occasionally over my book. Yes, um, and what what we've been we've been watching is Glow Up. Oh, the makeup competition. Makeup, yes, the makeup yeah. competition. Oh, that's Being awesome. Among is the thing. If you do really well, the judge with the thick glasses goes, that's a ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are very talented. I like the makeup. I like the premise. It's pretty good. Well, it's it's interesting. There's sort of like two things going on. There's the makeup yeah. job, but there's another job, which is prosthetics. Yes. And they mix them up. Like there are yeah. these contestants are expected to do the prosthetics and the makeup. Yeah. Uh, I think I see them as being separate careers, but maybe I'm wrong. I, they I could know. be. They could be. They could be separate careers. They absolutely could be. And but some people cross over because the prosthetic, you want to put makeup on it to make it look realistic. Uh, and I gotta say, some of these, well, as they as they call them on the show, MUAs, <laughs> it took me. I don't know, they two seasons them? of this before I realized MUA. That stands for makeup artist. Cam UA? MUA. MUA, yes. And they just keep artist. saying MUA, yes. MUA. MUA, yes. And all of a sudden I realized, <laughs> and I said to Sheila, Sheila, MUA is makeup artist. And Sheila hadn't realized that. She thought it was some like mysterious French word. Okay, MUA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like emulate. Oh, yeah. that's funny. MUA. Yeah. yeah. They're makeup artists. So I didn't know. What do I know? Yeah. No, I like that show. I haven't like watched it religiously where I know every contestant, but I've, I've definitely watched a few of them and enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's, it's a show. It's a very uh, 2020s kind of show because um, the contestants are, are largely general gender neutral, non- mm -hmm binary and yes. hosts are expert at the pronouns okay it's fascinating to yeah to watch these pronouns being used in the context of of the show and by these pronouns i mean yes. like yes. they yes uh, and I'm, it's it's very very interesting be, because if there's a certain awkwardness about it because they is a plural. They have, well, oh. they traditionally in our language, they has always been plural, but now right. they has become singular so that you could use it for a different use. Uh, but it's really awkward in some usages. Yeah, I feel like I'm very used to it, um, partly because of talking about animals. You know, for so many years, you'll often say they you'll often you might not know their gender you might not know if it's a boy or a girl cat or dog or something so i would say way, huh? i would say it I was yeah, talking about but it it's but it is kind of dismissive sounding i'm just coming at it from remember when i worked at riverdale farm for a while and i worked in the animal hospital um there was like a number of people i ran into who you wouldn't call some people don't call their their housemates pets they call them companions. Like there's a language around um, living with animals that is more That's respectful, right? You call yours the partners or 
you know, the dogs, yeah. I guess. But you know how, you know what I'm trying to say? Like saying they instead of it, it was kind of on trend for a while. Oh, okay. Well, it was pretty fascinating and yeah. it blew up to watch the hosts who have really mastered the use right. of the appropriate pronouns right. Right. Um, in, in talking about the contestants. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, um, it is. It is really cool because I would find because that's something I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, and if I were in a situation like that, in which I was with a whole bunch of people who um, were non-binary or mm -hmm. gender neutral or whatever, gender uh, fluid, yeah, fluid, whatever, yeah. Um, and and suddenly you find yourself having to use those pronouns that mm -hmm. people want you to use. And being able to 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 do that smoothly, yes, and I I would I would probably fail at that. It would be very awkward for me. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, it, it, I guess it's getting used to it. The other thing that's kind of amazing is that in the arts and in film and and in in modeling and creative arts and all of that kind of like film, you you've there's always been, you know, it's a high ratio of people who identify not as straight, sure. not yeah. as cis. Um, so you just got um, that kind of develops by itself. It's sort of similar as when you work in a bar within 10, 15 minutes, you find out what everybody's into sexually. It's just something you just <laughs> get used to. You're just like right away. Okay. You know, like you just get that taken care of. Well, yeah, interesting. We're talking about this because back to first to leave the party um, right. on, the, on the cover, uh, it's by Salah Bashir and in brackets, he, him. There you go. Um, and now, is that the first Canadian book to be published like that? Um, uh, the publisher thinks so. Yeah. He doesn't know of any other one that, that mm -hmm. has pronouns on them. That's pretty cool. The cover. So that's kind of groundbreaking. It's pretty cool. Very, very. I love that. I love that. Very cool. Well, it reminds me of a friend of mine and they're transgender and I went to stay with them um, after they had, um, they actually had some heart surgery and I went to stay with them and I was like, listen, um, what would you like me to call you? Which name? And they said, well, it's going to be obvious when I'm blank, call me blank. When I'm blank, call me blank. I don't want to say their name in case they don't want me to on the podcast. Right. But I said, oh, okay, that's fine. I mean, you know, there's such a spectrum of what people um, define themselves as that we're all in the process of learning. And it, yeah. it's, you know, it, it, and it's, it sounds hard only if it's like a test and you have to be correct. <laughs> well, right? that's it true. It isn't a test. We're just being sensitive. Yes. Yeah. And it's okay to be a little bit nervous and sensitive and we'll get by. So we found some buried treasure. You did? We did. Um, we were um, between episodes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh -huh. Sheila and I decided that we would uh, <laughs> throw our house into chaos and paint some walls <laughs> uh -huh. and, and paint our bookshelves. And at the same time, let's get rid of about a third of our books. So okay. in going through all of our books, and this is about the third time we've got rid of a third of our books, uh -huh. should leave us with none, but somehow <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, but uh, uh, we were um, we were going through we were going through the bookshelves, and we came across uh, a copy of 
my Uncle Harold's symphony, the score for his symphony. Yeah. Now, uh -huh. my Uncle Harold is uh, the interesting person in our family. Uh -huh. uh, he, uh, it's hard to believe that he was, you know, grew up in the junction, um, uh, living above uh, above his dad's uh, glove little glove factory and retail mm -hmm. outlet, uh, because he wound up living in New York and in Paris and hobnobbing with the artistic elite in post-war Europe and Paris, mm. uh, which is pretty fascinating, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, what we found out much later is he was also a spy, but that's... That's right, he was a spy, story. and we have verified that because in the New Yorker, they mention Harold Knappick and that he was a confirmed CIA. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know really a lot of details about that, but it's kind of yeah. interesting. You know, uh, I, his wife, Virginia, uh, in quotes, worked for the embassy. Uh, <laughs> and I know somebody told me at one point that they were very popular among the, the art community uh, because in post-war France, work, someone working at the U.S. embassy had access to endless supplies of American cigarettes. Oh, wow. Very, very popular people. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but they also summered with uh, Ellis Toklas for several summers, and wow, uh, uh, and we're we're friends with good friends with Man Ray and many of the artists who are living in, in Paris mm, at that time. Mm. Well, you come by it honestly. So, so we opened up uh, this the score, and inside uh -huh. the score um, was an essay beautifully oh. typed on really nice paper oh. um, called and it was sent to my parents in 1961 and so this essay probably sat there tucked oh in my God. this book since 1961 wow uh, and it's called nostalgic reminiscences shopping in paris 1948 to 1960 hmm. and it's fascinating should i read some I'd love you to read the whole, as much as you can, read the whole thing. It's fairly long, but I'll I'll try. Do it's, it. Do it. Have you got a glass of water? It's lovely, and it is buried treasure. We yes. didn't even know we had it. <laughs> as long as you've got some water, go for it. Okay. I think it a simple statement of fact that good cooking exists wherever good ingredients are available, where, in short, there is good shopping. And there wouldn't be much point going into which came first, since clearly they thrive simultaneously and inseparably. Huh. I live in the East, East 60s in Manhattan, which is as good a shopping neighborhood as one can find in the U.S., although I should say that it is also without doubt one of the most expensive. I use the word neighborhood, but I must qualify it. The 60s in no way resemble a genuine neighborhood. I would, if pressed, describe them as a state of mind, but no matter. They have other qualities, which I like very much. For example, one autumn day, a year or so ago, my wife and I watched as men planted 10 trees along one side of our street. They were not very prepossessing trees and we didn't think they would grow at all. Not because we are pessimists, but because we have seen so many trees die, either because of the foul air, the ministrations of dogs, or because the trees were not very strong to begin with. Well, the next spring, the trees revealed themselves for what they were, 
Japanese cherry trees and their blossoms transformed the street and recalled a Parisian experience. One day, a very beautiful day, as I recall it, as I walked through the Place Saint-Sulpice, I was brought up short at the sight of men working at what appeared to be the removal of the chestnut trees that had always been such an integral part of this tranquil square. I passed through the Place again some days later and saw that new trees had been planted. The object of this labor became clear the next spring. Someone, somewhere, had decided that the Place Saint-Sulpice would look better with pink chestnut blossoms rather than with white. Although I am familiar with the markets and shops of many cities and many countries, when I think about shopping, I invariably think of Paris. And by shopping in Paris, I'm not referring only to the luxury food shops, of which Paris has more than any other city in the world. Shops such as Fauchon, Corselet, Hediarda, La Truffe, Odelis, Coqueline N.A., Batandier, and countless others, all of which I patronized from time to time because they carried certain specialties which were not available elsewhere. What I'm referring to are the superb markets and the small shops of which there were an amazing variety. One notable way in which the modest shopkeepers in Paris differed from shopkeepers elsewhere was that the Parisian shopkeepers strive to achieve some sort of individuality, which given the number of shops seemed an impossibility. Nevertheless, they did achieve it. It may have been a very small way, an unusual pate, a wine produced by a relative, a superior homemade sausage, a contact with regional truffle dealers, or some other specialty but it was important enough to attract the attention of at least a small part of what amounted to the most knowledgeable and sophisticated food public in the world. Paris in 1948 was not too unlike the Paris of 1939, at least physically. The food shops that had made so much money on the black market during the German occupation deferred their transformation formidable, the renovations and refurbishment of their shops until the middle 50s, by which time such things had ceased to excite comment. Two, the methods of food distribution were still the traditional ones. The Halle Centrale were still in the heart of the city and one of the mysteries of Paris, despite the urban density. The country never seemed to be more than a few blocks away from wherever one was. As an example, one winter evening in Passy, a very elegant quarter, a few days before Christmas, I watched a farmer with a huge two-wheeled cart drawn by a massive Percheron horse, searching for the most advantageous spot from which to sell his immense load of mistletoe. The horse's breath steaming, the farmer ruddy face from the cold, as well as from the central heating provided by the mark he had thought to bring along. Another day, a perfect spring day, I saw another farmer with a similar horse and cart dump a load of lilacs into the street in the Marche de Boussy. His price was about 25 cents for as much as one could carry away. The bouquet I selected was so large, the only receptacle I could find to fit it into was a huge copper stock pot. And the <laughs> lilacs were so fresh, they lasted for well over a week. Oh. My favorite Parisian market, which I shopped in almost daily for 10 years, was the Marche de Debussy in 
the Rue de Seine, which was complemented by the Marche Saint-Germain, situated directly across from it on the other side of the Boulevard Saint-Germain. The Marche Saint-Germain was an indoor, or as the French call such a place, a covered market, and its merchants tended to give themselves airs, sometimes justifiably. Part of the Marche de Bussy consisted of pushcarts, of which the Marche Saint-Germain people took a dim view, but the pushcarts were supported by five or six blocks of the most variegated food shops imaginable, so the difference in cachet between the markets was slight if it existed at all. Everyone in the quarter, the Faubourg Saint-Germain, as well as a good many people from other quarters, shopped in these markets, and there was a nice camaraderie among the regular customers. I recall one of them, a very chic woman, asking me if I would mind if she took a few of my outer stalks of the large bunch of celery I was carrying in my bag. Certainly I didn't mind. She could use them as part of a bouquet garni, or as a flavoring for a soup, and less would be wasted. I like the French sense of economy, especially as related to food, since no other people have a better understanding of what is meant by luxe. I like the idea that during the Christmas New Year season, foie gras and oysters were available to just about everyone. The oysters, of which vast quantities were available, ranged from the asymmetrical but beautifully briny Portuguese and Claire's at less than a dollar a dozen to the symmetrical Baylons and Marons, which were sold by grades indicating size and price, and which went up to $9 or more a dozen. One had to open the market oysters oneself, and until I got the knack of it, I had to do a good deal of explaining to my piano teacher, who couldn't imagine what I had been doing to my hands. Fresh foie gras, uncooked, that is, was available as well as many cooked preparations. However, also available were miniature molds of foie gras, not much larger than half a lemon, studied, studded with at least one good-sized piece of truffle and coated with Madeira or port wine aspic. Oh, let's go to France. <laughs> the price for one of the small molds at that time was a little over a dollar. Some of the stalls in the Marche Saint-Germain were quite grand, notably the fish market, which aside from its stunning display of fish and crustaceans, prepared and sold soup de poisson and bouillabaisse, which were portioned out from immense cauldrons into the receptacles customers brought with them. The takeout business in France goes back a long way. The Mediterranean fragrance of these wonderful concoctions used to do wonders for my morale during the gray winter days, and believe me, Parisian winter days can be very gray indeed. The lady who owned and directed the operation of the fish market, a very brassy but cheerful sort, interested me, but at the same time troubled me a bit. She wore a very heavy makeup of such density and vividness of color, I had difficulty accepting the idea that she was real and used to wonder if, when they closed down at night, she was not perhaps placed under the counter until next morning when she would reappear, brassy and cheery as ever, like a female Petrushka, a Petrushka, however, with very good arithmetic. Another reason the stallkeepers of the Marche Saint-Germain gave themselves airs was that in addition to attending to the business of their stalls, they also very early in the morning did the buying and hauling of supplies from the Hal Centrale for the innumerable restaurants of the quarter, most of which were good and some of which were superb. However, of the two markets, the Marche du Boussy was the most interesting to me. It was the largest and the liveliest. The plan of the market, which incidentally played hell with traffic, 
was based, as I have said, on five or six blocks of shops supported by a line of pushcarts all on one side of the Rue de Seine. The pushcarts were semi-permanent in that the same vendors occupied the same places every day, except Monday when almost all the shops in Paris but the horse butchers and the boulangeries were closed. Well, the same pushcart people occupied the same places every day. They did not, except for the herb lady, sell the same items every day, but rather sold what seemed most advantageous given the season, hence the term, marchand de quatre saisons. I particularly liked one pushcart lady, a handsome woman who always seemed to offer a fruit or vegetable at the peak of its season and at a good price. She always sold out in an hour or two, and she alone of all the pushcart people seemed to have a life away from the market during the day. The herb lady, old and arthritic, was a very important member of the pushcart contingent. She sold parsley, uh, chervil, mm. uh, civet, uh, ciboule, they resemble scallions, leaf thyme, shallots, garlic, bay leaves, rosemary, tarragon, celery root leaves for soup, basil, and small, very hot green chili peppers. All of these herbs were fresh and were available the year round. They were regarded as necessities and were never expensive, even in the dead of winter. If you wonder about those most unfrench hot green chilies, so did I until I discovered that the herb lady probably out of perversity spent a good part of her day bargaining, or should I say refusing to bargain with an assortment of Oriental gentlemen, Indo-Chinese, Chinese and Hindu, who apparently were extremely fond of this item, but felt the going price was too high. There were more than a dozen butcher shops in the markets, but in general, I didn't buy from them, although some of them were good enough. I did very regularly buy ground beef for my cats from one of them because his meat was very lean, but I bought nothing else. And since this went on for several years, I had anticipated what eventually occurred. One day, the butcher looked up from wrapping my invariable purchase and said, Americans eat a lot of ground beef, don't they? To which I replied, what? Me eat ground beef? This meat is for my cats. The meat I eat, I buy elsewhere. Needless to say, I didn't go back to that butcher, but it was no hardship. I merely transferred my custom to another butcher without caring what sort of generalization he might make about my seeming fixation on ground beef. My regular butcher was anything but a market type butcher. And aside from his skill and desire to please, he ran his business in such a way that it was a pleasure to enter his shop. During the summer, for example, his awnings, which were very deep, were always down, which made for a most welcome coolness. Also, promptly at noon, he or one of his assistants would bring out a steaming, perfectly boiled brisket of beef on a platter along with the broth and a large pot. The customers bought the beef by the slice and brought old-fashioned milk cans to carry away the bouillon. The fragrance of the beef, which was cooked with leek, onions, carrots, bay leaves, cloves, thyme, parsley, salt, and pepper, was pervasive and often provoked spontaneous purchases. One day at noon, as I was talking with the lady who sold flowers in the street from a pushcart, a whiff of the fragrance of the beef hit us, and the flower lady bought a fine slice, which she ate, and I must say very delicately, from a piece of brown paper without benefit of utensils or anything else but salt and pepper. I was sorely tempted to follow, but lacked the nerve. 
sorry, to follow suit, but lack mm -hmm. the nerve. Another shop in the Marche de Boussy that I liked very much was an enormous charcuterie operated, I believe, by Corsicans. This shop started every market day off with a truly Rabelaisian display of cold foods. Their <laughs> display, which was arranged on vine leaves and vast quantities of strewn parsley, included York ham, Westphalian ham, Prague ham, Jambon de Bayonne, Jambon de Paris, Jambon d'Auvergne, all thinly sliced as they should be. Jambonneau, lightly cured pork shanks, poached, cooled, and coated with breadcrumbs, which is served cold, thinly sliced on the bias. Scarlet tongue, a Parisian specialty. Milanese salami, mortadella, zampon, saucisson d'arles, garlic sausage, pate and galantines of all sorts. The galantines studded with truffles and pistachios, terrines of fowl, pheasant, hare and duck, pate on croute, foie gras in port aspic, sold by the slice or the slab, an inimitable saucisson de Strasbourg or de Frankfurt, which resemble our Frankfurters only in appearance and which are indescribably fine, linked cooking sausages, notably the Lyonnaise variety, pig's feet cooked, boned, and breaded, ready for grilling, poached eggs set in tarragon-flavored aspic, quiches ready for reheating, every kind of salad, herring prepared in every conceivable way, stuffed vine leaves, olives from the olive-producing countries, all the olive-producing countries sold in bulk, pickles of all kinds, peppers and pimentos and olive oil, sauerkraut cooked in white wine, as well as fresh truffles and everything in tins or jars that complement these things, such as sardines, anchovies, mushrooms, and countless other good things. Charcuteries by law are permitted to sell fresh pork, and I discovered one fresh pork item that turned out to be a real boom. Pork spare ribs, traverse the pork, with so much meat on them that it took me a while to identify them. They were not even remotely related to the xylophones that are sold in New York for spare ribs, and the meat was tender and succulent. Oddly enough, fresh spare ribs are one thing the French do not know how to cook. Huh. In 12 years, I never did discover what they did with them. When corn, which is how one usually buys them in France, they're called petites salées and are used in a wide range of rather rustic dishes, such as with lentils in soups, garbures, half soup, half stew, and in combination with cabbage and boiled potatoes. I grilled the fresh ribs in the American fashion, and I must say the French guests to whom I served them liked them very much but I didn't believe any of them were flexible enough to adopt my method of cooking them, which I suppose they felt was a bit exotic. Although even French habits change and the barbecue is now quite popular. Alice Toklas lived a few short blocks from the Marche de Boussy and did a good deal of her shopping there, as well as in the Marche Saint-Germain. However, Alice, who was well known to a great many people in Paris, as well as in many other parts of the world, excited no interest whatsoever in these markets. But then the market people were a singularly blasé crowd. <laughs> At one time or another, I saw there shopping or just looking. Tristan, Sarah, André Breton, Giacometti, Max Ernst. Man Ray, Sergei Polyakov, Hans Belmer, Juliette Greco, Mayo the painter, Genet the man, Jeanette Flanner, Genet the woman, Natalie Barney, Paul Bowles, Jane Bowles, 
Thornton Wilder, John Steinbeck, William Faulkner, Charles Lawton, and even Clark Gable, which says something about the quarter that mm -hmm. earlier on had been Picasso's quarter. He had an apartment just a short distance away from Alice's apartment. This is the quarter of the great cafes, the Café de Flore, Les Deux Magots, and the Brassiere Lip. The latter, of course, the setting for the opening chapter of A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. All these cafes are still thriving, as are the markets, and will continue to thrive, I believe, forever, especially if forever is only as long as I think it might be. Harold L. Napick. Wow. What Pretty, I, huh? that, it's so fabulous. I can't imagine what it must feel like to think, what if you'd read that when you were 25 or or, you know, or a teenager. I mean, you already knew a little bit about him. How would that have influenced you? And you could have talked about it with your dad, you know? Um, but also, what's he saying? He's saying a little bit like what Anthony Bourdain said, was that you can make chicken as long as you've got very, very fresh herbs, and you do it just fresh, and you get the best chicken, the best herb, and the best butter. And if that's all you need. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's what he was reveling in. Yeah, he's saying how in New York, he doesn't have the culture of food to shop in. The stores are bankrupt in a way, or they don't have, which is not entirely true. But where he was, he didn't have a little market right there to in, to go and get his food and it would influence his cooking. Whereas in France, the the bounty of these markets influenced how you ate at home, I guess. I totally get that. I remember seeing the wet markets in, in Hanoi and in, in Hoi An um, and just the marvels of all of this fresh food piled yeah. piled up on tables yeah. and, um, and seeing how food was thought of in a different way mm. than we think of it. Here we think of um, meat comes in, a re in the refrigerated section of your grocers. Well, in a wet market in Vietnam, it's piled on a table, mm -hmm. right? They pile it on the table in the morning, they sell it all, and that's mm -hmm. it for the that meat, right? It doesn't sit around. Everything is, it's going to go out to the, the restaurant that's going to cook it. And it's, you know, the, the whole process um, is a process of fresh food, mm -hmm. which we don't really see here in the same way so i'm i'm confident that that's a similar feeling that harold had in the french markets yeah yeah and then you don't know an ingredient you talk to the person selling it and they say well you do it this way you do it that way you know it must have been a, an incredible exposure you know canadian markets were back especially that i don't think they were as varied or and he's saying new york city so imagine toronto how Darth, it would have been except for Kensington Market. Yes. You know, which was... And Harold, of course, was a chef. Yeah. Uh, he was a classically trained French chef and, in oh. fact, wrote a book about French cooking called Haute Cuisine Without Help. Right. Well, you know, the two go hand in hand, being a spy master and a good chef. <laughs> That's right. Sort of like Michael Caine in um, The Ipcris File. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's so stunning and wonderful. I love it. Well, it was a one of those things that was a total sur surprise. It had probably been sitting inside that symphony score in our house for the entire time we've lived here. Did your heart start beating when you saw it? Like, were you kind of racing adrenaline? Were you like, what have I found? Like, what is this? Yeah. And 
it's all typed, but it's impeccably typed. Oh There's no God. whiteout. There is no right. errors. It is perfectly typed. Wow. How do you do that? Just I have no it. idea. I know. Because even a good typist makes mistakes. Now, he might have hired a typist. Who knows? And May, Oh, you know what? You're so smart. I bet that's right. Or asked his Virginia to type. Could she type? I have no idea if she could yeah, type. I don't either. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we've really had a couple of themes tonight in our episode. We've had international, we've had travel, we've had food. Oh, I've got a big pot of chicken thighs, fresh English peas, potatoes, stock cooking away right now in the background. The cats here are going nuts. They keep coming downstairs, freaking out. And then I made a, a chowder as well with um, potatoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I always put time into my chicken wings. Uh, not chicken wings, chicken thighs, that's too. I am obsessed with time. Anyway, we've had a kind of a theme of spies, travel, computers, typing. <laughs> and I'm going to see the pigeon tunnel in a few minutes. Excellent. So I, I looked it up in Toronto. It is in the theaters. And I think it's playing in one near you. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I looked it up because I was I was hoping you would maybe get a chance to go see it. Well, I'll check it out. If I get a chance, I'll go next week. I, I can't possibly imagine that the combination of Errol Morris, the, one of the greatest documentarians ever, and John le Carre won't be magnificent or at least fascinating. Yeah, it should be. should be good. Yeah. And thanks to Adamandia, she shared. I think she went and saw it because she posted something about it on our on our Facebook page. And if you want to post anything on our Facebook page telling us something you want to see, please do so. Or you could email us anytime. Yeah. Have we checked our email? I usually can't get into our email. I no, I'll check it. I'll check it later. I can't now. I have to get going. Okay. Well, but what's our email address? Our email address is theagency.podcast at gmail.com. And Thank if you, you send us an email, we might even look at it. Oh, we will for sure. I just didn't today because I had challenges with, with getting this up and well, going. There could be there um, could be emails and we don't even know it. I know. Oh, my God. I guess I could look on my phone. Give me one second to do it. But in the meantime, I want to thank anybody for listening. It's good to be back on the podcast and recording. Yeah, and hope I uh, hope there's still a few listeners out there. It's been... Uh... It's been much longer than usual between episodes. And it's just like it, it's an international conspiracy to stop really us recording. And it's I want not you to for know lack of uh, wanting to. Your hard-earned money that you've shared with us on Patreon pays for our Zoom Pro every month, <laughs> which took me about two hours to log into today and get working. But thank you. <laughs> yes, we appreciate it. Helps it helps us get to you. I do not see any email. I'm sorry to say. Okay. Well... Talk to you soon, Eugene. Okay. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Peace. Peace.